0: You, yes, you, listener,
1: did you know that everybody at History Hack works for free? And as much fun as that is, it would be great if we could garner just a little bit of support for all of the time and effort that goes in to producing the show. Uh, I have a cat that needs food. Zach has Airfix models to buy. And Boney, well, Boney likes books. So if you can chuck us a couple of quid as a one-off by ko or subscribe to Patreon, we would much appreciate it. Thank you.
2: Hello, welcome to History Hack. I am back, ladies and gentlemen, I am back and I've got with me the fabulous Beth. Beth, tell us who have we got on today. Oh, it is wonderful to, to have you back,
1: Alina, after after all this time. So, and I'm, I'm really looking forward to this one. I think this will be a good first one back for you. Um, so, we're joined by Lindsay Powell today. Uh, Lindsay is an ancient historian with a passion for the military might of Rome. And obviously, I find Rome really quite interesting myself. I'm not sure about anyone else, but I love it. Um, he's authored numerous books, edited magazines, and you have actually, you will see his face on your TV in some places as well. Um, and today, he's here to tell us about the subject of his new book, The Jew Who Defied Hadrian and Challenged the Might of Rhyme. So, Lindsay, welcome to History Act. Thank you.
3: Thank you very much indeed. Excited to be here.
1: Bar Kokhba is not the name of the person that it's associated with, is it?
3: That's, that's interesting. That was one of the things that, uh, that I picked up in all the research. Um, yes, it's, it's basically the, the name of an avatar, if you like, uh, and it has a sort of religious connotation. Um, so we can explore some of those things. But but what we understand is if, if you look at the pile of evidence that we've got, it takes the form of coins. So the, the, the rebels that he led uh, took Roman coins and overstamped them with their own messages and pictures. So they were literally defacing the Roman emperor's face by smashing their own images of lyres and grapes and stuff on top of his face. And ins- the inscriptions, were, which were written in, in, in a very old f- form of Hebrew called uh, Paleo-Hebrew, um, call him... Shimon, that's all they call him, Shimon. Um, and then when you read the later texts, what you'll find is, is that they then start using this, this word, um, uh, which, which was really Koziba, uh, which is Ben Koziba. And that actually means, believe it or not, son of a lie. And what's interesting, when you start following all the threads, it turns out that the uh, evidence, the archaeological evidence, shows us that his actual name was Shimon Ben Kosiba which is Kosiba, is just the, like the father's name or the name of a place. But because in Hebrew you can change letters, that changes the meaning. So an innocent noun naming son of Kosiba, by changing one name by meaning, bar Cosiba means it went from Kosiba to a liar. Why is that all significant? You're probably losing, losing uh, your attention by now. It's important because um, in the uh, interpretations that happened in his lifetime, but mostly afterwards, um, a particular rabbi who's very important in, in the great story of Judaism, um, made a link between the man that he was seeing in life, we think, and this this, this this prophecy of a messiah coming along. And there's this idea of a star, which as it turns out is kukba in, in, in Hebrew. And he said, this man is the son of the star of prophecy, yeah. which means he's the messiah. So what happens is, is that the Christian writers, and this is interesting, most people don't understand this. Actually, we think of Roman history, we think of Jewish history, maybe not so much, but there's a Christian history as well. Mm-hmm. And there were contemporaries of this man, people like Justin Martyr, who started to use words describing like, right? So what they seem to be hearing is that they're hearing these, these Hebrew names and they're transliterating them into Greek. So ironically, he calls himself Shimon. That's, that's what he calls him. His name is Shimon. Kusbah by, by virtue of the letters that we found, but other people either contemporary or later refer to him as Bar Kokhba, which seems to mean son of a star. So this rather strange misnaming is, is part of the legend which is developed over later and later in years mm-hmm. and, and, and in, in the way that King Arthur's story may have a root of truth in it. Uh, which is maybe he's the leader of a resistance fighter in a part of Britain. We don't quite know where that is. People still fight over that. Is it Wales? Is it Cumbria? Where? Um, This man we know exactly did exist. We know he had a name. We know that he did things, which were things that rebels do. But later people reinvented him for their own purposes. And and as we talk about the history of Israel and places um, in later ages, it's how people use... People of the past to, to further their own designs and interests, which is which is really interesting to me because it, it, it's 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 in a sense it's how you make history, and I think when you know you, you do podcasts about history, uh, and I think that that what we try to get to is this idea that there's there's a truthiness to it, there's a truth, right? But as you find out when you read historical accounts, you always have to be aware of the writer has an agenda. He's trying to make a point. He's bringing out certain things, but he's leaving out other things um and we've got to be i think very aware when we read historical documents and then look at archaeology and all the other stuff and by the way being there to test it all out yourself that you try to get as close to the reality of the historical characters you can and that's for me. that's the great that's great appeal that's great draw yeah.
2: I'm going to throw in uh, another character that comes into your story and that's Hadrian and a lot of the Brits out there are going to know about Hadrian's war and I think a lot of us know that's pretty much what we know about Hadrian is about Hadrian's war. I mean, can you tell us a little bit about who Hadrian was? Where are we in history with him and what is he like?
3: Oh, that's, that's, a, that's a wonderful question and, and he's, he's really one of history's most interesting, beguiling and frustrating characters. Uh, yes, he he commissioned a wall, which, by the way, he never saw completed, which is kind of ironic. Uh, and that's also typical of so many things that he did. He he was uh, a great tra- itinerant Roman emperor. He, he travelled a lot. Um, and the result is he, he started things. He, he pulled money into projects, build a temple, build a city, you know, do these things. And he, But he never actually got back to see how the progress was made on things. So It's, it's ironic that, yes, in... In his lifetime, we're talking because else what what we're probably talking about. He was born in seventy six A.D. So if if you refer to sort of biblical history, if you're interested in those things, this is about fifty or sixty years after the death of Christ, right? So this is after Augustus, this is after Caligula. We're, we're 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 into the I think the ninth or tenth or eleventh emperor at this point. So Hadrian uh, is a fascinating character because he's only the um, if you like that the second uh, potentially non-Roman let's uh, just say, Italian emperor that, that Romans have. There's some argument whether he was actually born in Spain or whether he was born in Rome. I think he was born in Rome. Um, but his history is fascinating because, one, he's the great traveller. Uh, there's one of the Roman writers describes him as a, a, a man of great curiosity and exploration. Um, I think he'd bit of a good, very good historian because he was restless. He, he wanted to travel, he wanted to find out stuff. Um, he was a military guy. He was, he was a Hellene in the sense that if it was Greek, he loved it. Uh, he was gay, we think, uh, which is interesting because that's that's a great subject for his stories because now we're opening the, the, the doors on gay history and in only in the last six or seven years there's, there's gradually now a sort of um, uh, an opening up of the mind to say that yes we actually have here a gay Roman emperor, which is which is quite fascinating. Uh, who has a boyfriend by the way, um, who takes him on tours. Uh, and we know that uh, he's he's a man that's um, got a great curiosity about the world. But uh, he also has an under, underpinning of cynicism. Uh, he, he's skeptical about things. Um, he has a, a, a cold side to his character where uh, he can be very dismissive of people, and make them feel very uneasy and expect them to commit suicide sort of thing. Um, so so is he the kind of guy that you want to have a beer with in a pub? In fact, I actually, I actually wrote a paragraph to go in the book, and I decided not to include it. And it basically concluded this. This is the sort of, sort of guy that you'd want to have on your quiz team in the pub because he'd probably know all the answers, and he'd always want to have the last word. And he'd probably sort of make some sharp comments, and you'd go with this chill with, with, to send down your backbone because you realise there's, there's, there's a story where apparently he was arguing with somebody about the meaning of a word and uh, these people said well how would you know and he said you're really going to argue with the guy who's got 30 legions <laughs> 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 so ooh, okay i won't argue the him.
1: obviously we've got the the two main characters of of, of your of your book as it were um mm-hmm. but obviously what what the the essence of the book is it's about the plot isn't it The what happens the in Israel, in this time period, and obviously you can't not talk about if you're talking about Israel, you have to talk about the Jewish people um, mm-hmm. who are in Israel at the time. So, who who are the kind of people that are in Israel at that time? Um, are they because we have this? I mean, from the limited period, the limited information I have about that area um, mm-hmm. of the world at that time is that you know they're are repressed people. The Romans are definitely in charge. Is, is that is that the case?
3: I think you know, taking the thirty-six thousand feet view, that that's probably true. Um, to put it in context, so so the, the Jews and the Romans have a very awkward relationship um, in, in this regard. So the Romans didn't set out to conquer this part of the world, which is actually called Judea in most most historical accounts. Um, and by accident, partly they 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 fall into occupying this place. Um, Jewish history goes back thousands of years. Uh, and, and it's a fascinating topic all on, it, on, on its own. But, but, it, but in essence, um, the, the Jews consider themselves the chosen people. They have one God. They have covenant with the God. They have to circumcise if you're a male. There are dietary requirements. There are observational things you have to do with uh, religious practice. Uh, there's, there, there are books. You have to study Talmud and, and Torah. And so the five the books relate to Moses. And, and those insights govern how people rule their lives. And what's fascinating about that is Romans sort of kind of get the idea that it's very old and they respect because it's very old. They also understand that they've got these books and documents and, okay, that kind of go But what they wrestle with is the fact that they just kind of won't conform. Uh, and, and that Romans expect, uh, and this is this is from the sort of the administration point of view, maybe more so than the ordinary man in the streets, that um, part of the the, the the fact of actually being... A person within the Roman world is this the flexibility to be able to tolerate other people. So you'll expect that they have different religions. And that's not usually the point that people argue about. But they will say, look, in order for us to get along, we have certain feast days and sort of festivals and sacrifices. We expect you to show up because that's what Romans do. Today, we're going to sacrifice to Minerva or to Mars, you know, show up. And, and the Jews will say, "I'm sorry, I can't because that's Shabbat. You know, I have, to, I have to." And they'll say, "What do you mean you can't be there? Everybody's going to be there." Well, we can't because our religious things tell us not to. And, and it's little sort of details like that and uh, uh, misunderstandings that cause friction. Um, and uh, the, it, 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 in the time of that we're talking about, there had been already in the fifty years previously um, a, a disastrous revolt where the Jews rallied around a, a, a couple of individuals. Um, and basically the intention was to set up an independent state to to boot the Romans out. And the Romans were caught kind of unawares, and this is at the time of Nero, interestingly enough, in Mm. 68. And um, Nero sends in his best generals, a guy, one of those is uh, Vespasian, who's actually got a number of campaigns behind him, some of which are in Britain, interesting enough, as as a younger uh, commander. Um, And and that revolt, which starts in 66 AD, ends up with the destruction of the temple in 70. Why is that important? Well, the focus of Judaic um, tradition and religious observation is the temple um, in in the center, in the heart of uh, Jerusalem at this time. And it had been the first one had been built by Solomon, that had been destroyed by the Babylonians, It had been rebuilt. Uh, by the time the Romans saw it in 70, it had been rebuilt again by Herod. A lot of Jerusalem had been rebuilt by Herod. And Herod was considered by the Romans to be a very good ambassador for them. He kind of tolerated, he worked with them. He, he was very much a sort of Philo-Roman in the sense that he uh, adopted the, the ways and means and, and all the rest of it that went along and was a very good man to have on the spot. Uh, but there were tensions because a lot of Jews said, "Well, actually, you're you're a Jew in name only, <laughs> a gentile, if you like," um, and and that itself caused problems. And when when he died in about four BC, the Romans started to get more involved in medal. And the trouble is between four BC and um, sixty six, there are all these opportunities for for people to to riot and and, and cause uh, areas of dis uh, disaffection and 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 so on. There are a number of people who stand up as uh, figures that call themselves effect- effectively messiahs. And, and this is another aspect which kind of is, is tricky because um, with, within the Jewish tradition, there's an idea that the people who have been sort of spread across the world, I mean, a lot of Jews, of course, you remember, went ended up in Babylonia, by mm. like the rivers of Babylon, the famous uh, the, the psalm. Um, the idea is that they will come back together, but they will come back together because a man will lead them, a guy called Yuck, a Moshiach, a messiah. Um, but he's a military figure, effectively. I mean, it, it's it's about uh, fire and brimstone and and, and sort of throwing out the enemies from Jerusalem, and taking back the the twelve tribes. And, and and really um, reestablishing covenant with God, this this is the kind of thing that happens, but but in actuality, it's it, 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 all of these fail, all these th- these, these failed messiahs that come and go, come and go, and the Romans just think of them as being a thorn in the side, and administrators go in, famously Pontius Pilate, remember him? Yeah, right? yeah. Um, who is faced with another guy who's presented as a messiah, and he goes, not another one, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, and this ultimately leads to the Romans. Besieging Jerusalem, they destroy the temple with profound impact because the whole of the idea of Judea was centered really about uh, rituals around the temple. When you take the temple away, you can't have the rituals. So the Pharisees and the Sadducees, all those people we kind of read about uh, in, in the New Testament context, they effectively kind of disappear. So in, in the world that we come up to, when Hadrian's coming in, and this man that we're going to be talking about, Bar Kokhba, he exists in the world where those, those people don't exist. There is no temple culture anymore. Um, Judaism is in, at, at risk, in effect, of going in many, many different directions. And this little group of people, there are only about 60 of them, apparently, in, in Judea at this time, who are called rabbis, which basic, basically means uh, my teacher. And uh, th- th- these people fill the vacuum left by the dis- the, 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 of the, the, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, um, and they are the people who will now interpret the five books of Moses and try and say. So, when, for example, uh, a Jew says, "I don't understand. I want to marry this woman. Um, you know, what do I need to do to make sure that the rituals and the cleanliness and so on?" And you would you would go to the temple previously and you would talk to somebody, even that you know, have a paschal lamb and a lamb. You'd have the sacrifice, you'd get the words, and off you go. But this didn't happen. So now rabbis were the people who gradually became much more important figures in Jewish society. And we come then ultimately to this guy called Rabbi Akiba. And he is the one who makes this association between this man, Ben, ben Kozibah, and this messianic figure, and says, he is the guy that's going to boot out the Romans. He is the guy we can rally around, and, and he's the guy that my money's on. And, and, and this is a figure that goes right the way through Jewish history. The Arabic Hebrew is a very, very important uh, figure. And it's it, it, it's, it, it's a very complicated thing to try and convey. But to, to bring it down to brass tacks, the Romans don't understand this. <laughs> okay, um, You can see the potential for misunderstandings. Uh, um, that There's a language difference as well. I mean, the Jews, of course, they, they're speaking Hebrew. I don't know that many Romans are speaking Hebrew. And actually, in that part of the world, many people are Greek speakers. So you've already got this triangulation of three aspects. So in this small strip of land in Judea, you've got Jews who are really unhappy because in the previous 50 years, they'd seen their temple destroyed. And and there's a lot of really terrible consequences from that. Uh, The Romans start to double down on their military occupations um there are the, the troubles that go on with with the the other pagan communities who once again sort of see that the jews are kind of the downtrodden ones this and start to really rub that in uh hadrian comes into this uh bumbles into it i'm not sure because I, I always look at this man and think that he's really smart he, he understands stuff he asks questions he can have anything he wants and he normally gets anything he wants and on his tours uh, of, 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 the, of the world, he's he's fascinated. He sees cities with potential. Hey, you could build a new forum there. I'll give you some money. Go build a forum. Look, you need a wall. Build a wall between that place and that place. Do it. And, and he's doing this. And he has a plan for Jerusalem. So after this war that that destroyed the temple in 70. Um, basically, Jerusalem is a ruin. It's, it's fascinating to think that the place that we see on TV on a regular basis, crowned, filled with buildings, flags flying, and all this stuff, was a ruin. And it had been basically a ruin for almost 50 years. There was a, there was a Roman camp, we think, actually inside the, the, the actual walls of Jerusalem at that time to ensure that nothing really happened. There's some evidence for, for industrial activity and so on, and maybe some merchants. But, but Hadrian looks at this and says, this is magnificent as a site. If you've ever been to Jerusalem, the physical site itself is, is fascinating. It's, it's actually very high up on a hill. We tend to think of, of Israel as being very flat, and, and to the point where I'm saying that the, the, the thrill of doing the research is to go to a place to really imbibe it and run the soil through your fingers. The soil in Israel, by the way, is a sort of um, uh, like milky, creamy-coloured uh, limestone, uh, limestone, and uh, all the buildings, therefore, have this wonderful sort of milky, whitish colour about them. And it, Jerusalem is very high up, but there's snow in the winter a lot of the time. People don't think of that part of the world that ever has snow. It gets really hot and humid, but you get snow in the winter. And um, he looks at this place and says, I see great potential for this. Why don't we redesign it, build a new city? The trouble is that it, that there's so much religious investment in that place. For a pagan to come along and say, I'm going to redesign this, and I'm going to give it a name called Colonia, Aelia uh, Capitolina, which basically is, is clever rebranding. Um, Ilia is, 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 a, is the name of his family. He is Ilius Hadrianus. Um, and what he's doing in the name of the city, he said, he's branding it. This is my city. It's a colonia, which is basically a city where Roman citizens, often former soldiers, retired soldiers, will set up home. And Capitolina is is the final nail in the coffin, if you will, because the Capitolian uh, name refers back to the Capitolian hill in Rome itself, where there's temples to Jupiter, uh, Juno and Minerva, the sort of the the, the three principal Roman gods. So in in one fell swoop, he's going to redesign a Jewish city, put Roman citizens, all ex-soldiers in there. And he's actually scrubbed the name out as well by calling it basically my city and my gods. Mm. Um, you can only imagine the sort of uh, repulsion that, that you would have for something like that. The only thing I can suggest is, if, for example, if um, another group of people went in and, and demolished the Vatican and decided we we're going to build a supermarket on the top of it, you know, <laughs> that that's the sort of shock value I think that this would have, and 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 that would seem to be the trigger point for uh, this rebellion. And uh, people rallied around this man that we call Balqaba. To, to, to actually liberate and kick these Romans out.
2: Is it fair to say that Hadrian actually makes a systematic attack on Judaism?
3: Oh, that's really hard to answer. Uh, my impression from reading everything is no, I, I don't think so. Um, part, of, part of the issue is this, going back to what I said earlier, is, is the Romans have this really uncomfortable, somewhat uninformed relationship with, with their Jewish community members anyway. Um, but they do sort of respect them to the extent that I mean, there are synagogues in Rome, for example. There's a, there's a big Jewish community in Rome. They're all over the Roman world. They're actually in the army. I mean, you know, it, 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 so, so, so Jews have a very active part in the Roman world. I, I don't see really um, specifically at this time him going out of his way to pick on individual Jews or the, or the whole uh, culture and, and trying to eradicate it. Now, there had been in the years after the Jewish war remember i told about that was 66 to 73 everybody's heard of masada so famously masada is that is basically the last thing that happens in this jewish war and certainly the flavians remember i mentioned the name Vespasian, who took over nero so so he actually becomes emperor and he and his sons uh, particularly Titus, who was very active in that war, and then Domitian the take over. They have a very aggressive anti-Semitic policy. They tax Jews particularly. There's a Fiscus Judaicus, which basically is a is a treasury. And what they do is the tithe that Jews pay to to support the temple in Jerusalem. Well, the way they look at it is, so war, war reparations. We're confiscating that money, and we're going to use that to build our temples. So um, there are all sorts of uh, the, the bad feelings that happen from that. But by the time you get to Hadrian another emperor stepped in the way and has actually eliminated that tax in fact he issues a coin basically saying this really was this was really bad the bad public policy and it was just bad for our empire we're not going to do that anymore um, th- th- there is a, there's an insinuation that he introduced some sort of legislation to ban uh, uh, circumcision the problem with that is it's only mentioned in one document and the document itself a little bit dubious quality. It's called the Historia Augusta or Scriptoris Historia Augusta, which is like a 4th century AD compilation of biographies. Um, and, and there's a lot of scholarly debate as to whether the, you know, they're written by one man or several. Uh, are they really satirical? I mean, that's an interesting thing. You know, we tend to think because they're written in Latin or Greek, they must be very serious. So the Romans actually writing a satirical biography, you know, that, that's a little uneasy, isn't it? Um, but on the other hand, we've got Suetonius. How about this for an interesting factoid? Suetonius is actually the record keeper for the Emperor Hadrian, right? And there's some insinuation that he he does, he sort of gets a bit too close to Hadrian's wife and is dismissed from his office. So ironically, we we, we could have had a, an ex, a couple of extra chapters for the life of the Caesars. Remember, the 12 Caesars is the famous thing that Suetonius... He could have written the one about Trajan and Hadrian, but we don't have that. So we have to rely on these other sources... And this this one I'm talking about, which is the Historia Augustus, uh, Historia Augusta, I'm sorry, um, which you'll often see abbreviated to either SHA or simply HA, um, HAD dot Hadrian being the, the HAD, and it's full of all these really interesting details. But you're always left with this question: Is it really true? Um, and and that's part of the challenge in trying to understand the man and the events of the time. So that's the place that mentions circumcision, and it's an attack. If you certainly ban circumcision this is the crux of the covenant between Jewish males and God, Yahweh. And um, if it's true, it's pretty badly judged. The, the other side of it is, is that actually the Jews weren't the only people in the ancient world to engage in circumcision, There were other Arabic communities as well. That um, the Romans looked at it as, as being, there's, the Latin phrase actually translates as mutilation of the genitals. Um, And in fact, and earlier emperors, it it was was tantamount to murder. I mean, it's a strange thing for us to think about that. But um, again, you're looking at different cultural appreciations of the human body, and the Greeks have a different view of it than the Romans. Uh, The Romans come to adopt more of a Greek view on the body, uh, like they have no particular problems showing it off, right, in in public public nudity. Jewish people have a problem with that. I mean, it's not modest to do those sorts of things. On the other hand... um, a sort of circumcised male at a gymnasium is is a subject of ridicule because look he has no foreskin what, what sort of what sort of mutilation is this so um, that's really all you can say uh, in addition then to which this decision to build Jerusalem and there's some other things there are insinuations that he's trying to ban Sabbath and studying Torah and these sorts of things but again it's it's the quality of the books you get information from uh, a lot of these books were written a long time afterwards and there was a vested interest of those people writing the history to pin a lot of things on this because they were trying to give a slant and to make themselves even more the underdog. Right, You have to sort of build this case of, you know, we've been picked on for all these years and look, look what he did. So it, it's really hard to tell, but to sum this part up, I, I don't think he had a particularly uh, anti-Semitic policy, uh, but, but, but it was tantamount if you were a Jew, that's how you might interpret it
1: yeah so obviously the the your story is 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 about Bar Kokhba and and what happens in that period of time so let's let's get into that so tell us about who Shimon Ben Kosiba Kosba however you say it um how <laughs> does he how did who who is he at this time how does he come into the story and and how do we know about
4: him
3: you know good questions um so let's <laughs> just call him let's just call him Shimon because that's easier yeah. Shimon means Simon um, we know who's Jewish. Uh, uh, we, we have some letters, which are actually um, in his name. Um, we also have one, which we believe actually has a signature on, which is really shocking because you can actually, it's rare that you can read a letter and see a signature at the end of it. I mean, that's this, this is one of the great appeals to me. Um, most others of, of ancient history, you have to read an inscription and you have to read Tacitus and something, and you're very, very distant from the events. But here we've got a rare case where he might have had you written there. Um, that, that, so, so what we know from a combination of the Greek sources, which are primarily Di, uh, Cassius Dio, who's writing around about 200, uh, 220 AD, so already about 100-something years after the events, um, there are basically two chapters in one of his books which which sets the scene um, and and really amazingly doesn't describe him. <laughs> so, so he doesn't mention him by name. So, so we, oh, there's a revolt that happens, but they don't mention him by name. We, we, we know through the later Jewish kind of um, descriptions that he seems to have been a man from the south of the country, so probably more the desert area, more the sort of area that we would consider now to be um, occupied territories, actually. I mean, area around Hebron, for example, uh, not as far west as, as Gaza, but Hebron and maybe slightly southeast of that. Um, so that wonderful part of the country, which is the uh, Judean Shephelah, which is the rolling hills and, and just the just silvery part of the country. Um he spoke hebrew uh, it's very interestingly um he seems in the letters to insisted that his scribes wrote in, wrote in aramaic bookhand so when you see jewish documents today you notice those beautiful square like characters yeah. with lots of accents um before that there had been another style of writing which we call paleo hebrew which was which was quite frankly looks looks like a spider's crawled over the page it's, it's a very strange kind of way of looking at but very antique it goes back many, many hundreds of years. And um, he decided that because the religious texts, the Torah uh, mainly, were written in this style, that he wanted official correspondence to be written in this style. So what's really interesting is you you get these documents where people are having to effectively learn how to write in this way and to speak Hebrew. So he's trying to unify the the, the people around this idea of an identity of Jewishness, which is also reflected in the writing. But it also creates the idea that official correspondence looks almost religious which is really interesting. Um, I'm trying to think in a sense, it's a bit like um, uh, English literature suddenly written, being written in, in Gothic, like to, to imitate sort of like King James Bible or something. Um, you know, it, it carries a weight and authority, therefore. So when he sends out an, um, from his headquarters, um, you know, I wanted to do this, written in this book hand, you go, oh, better do that because it's really official. Um, we know he was a stickler for observing all the Jewish holidays um, and uh, the letters go to great lengths to make sure that they get, for example, the citrons and uh, palm fronds and stuff so they can observe uh, the various festivals. Um, we, we know from the same letters that he was a micromanager. Um, he was somewhat of a disciplinarian. He was probably quite cruel. Uh, he didn't suffer fool, fool's life uh, uh, um, lightly. And there are a number of instances where he's basically telling his troops, his, his, his lieutenants, if you like, or lieutenants, pull your finger out. I'm paying your salary. <laughs> We're all sacrificing. You're not doing your job. Get it done. Um, and and, and it's, it's, it's really interesting to sort of get these perspectives, um, which are authentic, because this is his voice, either him directly or through his scribes. And um, it, there must have been a great charisma about this man. And those are the things in, in history you you have to sort of like Im- imply from reading things. The fact is people followed him. Okay. the way I can kind of describe it is someone says, I've got an idea to take our country back, got to be careful now, um, and you know, people might laugh at you, but but if you're a certain persona, if you have a certain way of speaking and, and a passion, maybe a lot of people will follow you, and he was that man, he he does seem to have been able to achieve that, because um, Hadrian, who visits Judea in 129.30, 130, it seems to be to inspect progress on his city, right? Because this is this is work that he's commissioned. He wants to see how it's going. And then he moves off and he goes then off to Egypt. And then he goes in on, on tours around the rest of the world. Two years later, this revolt blows up and people are overstamping these coins with his name, Shimon. Um, he is self-styling him. Uh, he, he gives himself the title Nazi, which seems to be like president or prince, probably more like a president or premier. Um, which is, is, is interesting because, again, looking back through more recent Jewish history, that would seem to imply possibly a, a nationalistic idea that he is in charge of this, this, this campaign, this government. And by the way, the name he gives his government is Israel. So he calls himself President of Israel, Nazi Israel. Mm. And this is fascinating because what, what, what that means is he could have called the country Judea. He doesn't. He could have called it Zion, Zion as his no. He chose Israel deliberately, and he has a, he has maybe aspirations not just to take back this part of the world where his people are, but to bring other people into his campaign. And uh, at this point, now we had sort of almost guess what his motives are. But it's very clear he has a title, he has a name, he's using um, rabbinic law to, to to govern how people rule their lives, um, and he expects people to follow it. You know. Uh, when he gives an order, you follow the orders, and um, so I wonder, in a sense, that, that, that the cover of my book interesting enough. I try to put two faces. The man in the background, by the way, is the Emperor Hadrian. The man in the front is an unknown man. That isn't that isn't but but I, I thought that I needed a face to put because under Jew, Jewish traditions, you you can't show a, a graven image, right? You, you can't actually make a carving of a man because that's that would break the tenth command. Um, But what I think what this is, is really two men who are very much alike, micromanagers, strong individuals, think they know how to get it done, get really irritated by people who think they know better than him. And it's a clash between those two personalities. And what's extraordinary is that this man who is in a teeny tiny part of the world, and and you remember because you've been to Israel, it's a very small place. It's like 35 miles wide, like 100 and something, 70 miles all right i mean this, this whole thing could sit in, great, in greater london almost you know it's it's a tiny little place and yet he managed to pin down the romans for three and a half years he had a functioning country for three and a half years how can this be uh and this was this was a great mystery for me um and uh and to some degree i still haven't been able to answer it because there, there's so many answers but it's a fascinating story
2: so tell us, I mean, how he goes about it because this is incredible. I mean, you just said you it's it's difficult to answer. Give us a little bit of an
4: insight. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row, dreaming of something better? Well, Hello Fresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm, Hello Fresh
3: The impression we get, we have to go back to Cassius Dio, he, he seems to sort of suggest that this was this was long term in the planning. Uh, he, he talks about that, that um, there were mutterings behind closed doors uh, and in farms. So the one thing about this, this part of well is that there are not many big towns, but there are lots of fortified farms uh, which are on hilltops and so on. And they, they, they grow wheat and grow vines and so on. Um, but they also dig tunnels underneath their their, their their villages because that's where you keep cool stuff, right? That's what the, I mean, what stuff you keep cool. Um, but interesting enough, that's also where you can um plan and scheme. And what it seems to be is that this man and people that he brought to his cause planned to have an uprising, that there must have been a, a, a scheme to arm people, that Cassius Dio refers to. The the Jews making weapons for the Romans, uh, but making them just low enough quality that the Romans would reject them, which means that they just take them back and say, sorry, but they correct them and then they use them for themselves. So he he builds up armaments that way. He sort of builds up a secret army, it would seem to be. Um, And at some chosen time, we don't know when, around about A.D. 132, when Hadrian is far away and the Romans are distracted and bang, this thing happens and the impression that we have is is that um that the, the the nexus of this was a place called herodium which is an absolutely magnificent human-made mound uh, just uh, just east of jerusalem and it, it's actually um fascinatingly built it's like a conical hill that rises out of the judean plain and on the top of this herod had built a fortress a circular fortress it was actually a magnificent piece of architecture and he also built his sepulchre, sepulchre actually in the side of it and it had been a, a, a focal point of command under the first Jewish war. And then Titus had come along and basically bulldozed it. But there was nothing left of it that this man that we're calling Shimon looked at it and thought, that will be my headquarters. And from there, that was his Ford field headquarters that he commanded the uh, other militias. And that seems to be all he had was, was militia army. It was people, one day they're farmers or bookkeepers the next day they're picking up a sword and a spear and a shield and now you're the army <laughs> uh, and, and that's that's basically what they had and 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 with that they were able to launch guerrilla attacks on the romans who it turns out from from again from Cassius dio had no idea what was going on uh, it's extraordinary think that, that we seem to think of them in a, in, in a little bit and i've got to be very careful how I phrase this but uh, i think a lot of people have the idea of an invincible roman world but the Romans are able to control absolutely everything. Um, they are the masters of their universe. They have their best army and all the rest of it. To which I say, so why were there so many revolutions where they were pinned down for so many years and took casualties and all that if they were so invincible? And here's a case in point. So what, what appears to be is that the, the man in charge of the province, a man named Tinius Rufus, starts to get reports from his outposts and the Roman army at this point consists of two legions and a lot of auxiliary troops, which is, say, professional non-Roman troops. And, and, and Jews basically grabbing the garrisons, killing them and taking over the town. So Jericho and Engedi Gedi and places like this. And, and it's almost as if you, were to, if you were to have a map and do computer graphics, suddenly you'd find a little, little village would have flames would appear all over. right? And because of the way the communications work in those days, He's relying on messages to come back to his headquarters. And he's in Caesarea, which is a magnificent city on the West Coast. And if you ever go to Israel, you have to go to Caesarea because it's a wonderful place to go see. And what you have to understand is that that wasn't a Jewish, that was not a Jewish city. That was a Roman Greek sort of Samaritan city in the sense that um, if you were to walk down that, the streets of that place, it was like walking down a city in Italy or in Greece or uh, Gaul. For example, I mean, regular streets, uh, buildings you'd recognize, temples to Augustus, uh, you know, a functioning port with ships coming in from around the world, um, just that, just a busy working Roman city. But that's also where the governor in this big, huge. Building. I mean, this thing is as big as a football field with two or three levels, military staff working in there, uh, pumping in reports, allocating resources to different places. And and, and and in AD 132, messages start arriving from the garrisons deployed across Judea, um, attacks underway, trying to deal with the situation, uh, send help. And it seems to be, for the first weeks or months, he goes, My guys on the ground will, boots on the ground, will deal with this. The way the Roman army uh, is set up, it, it's actually quite decentralized. There's a lot of authority quite low down in the ranking system. You know, It goes down to a centurion who is given operating instructions and can do a lot within those sorts of things. He doesn't need to be told, do I respond? He knows to respond, but also to keep the higher ups informed. And this is what's happening. And, and, and it's only after a while that Tinius Rufus pieces together, oh, crap, I've got a revolt on my hands. He then seems to have just started to deploy his legion, which in this case is in Jerusalem. It's actually the uh, 10th of the Ironsides, the iron which is quite an interesting kind of uh, way of looking at it. Um, and, and, and they're taking casualties. Why do we know they're taking casualties? Well, actually there's a letter, interesting enough, Fronto, who is a correspondent, is writing to Hadrian's successor. I think it's actually Marcus Aurelius.
0: In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany, Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts.
3: Go two down the line. Uh, Where he makes this really interesting comment where he said, Oh, how many, how, many, um, how many of us were killed by the Jews and by the Britons? And that's got two nuggets of information in there, which should say at the time of the Emperor Hadrian, there was a revolt not only in Judea, but also there was one in Britain, and they caused a lot of casualties. The Romans took lots and lots of casualties, so this was an embarrassment for them. Um, and it's lost sort of in the other accounts. And this is why history is interesting, because you have to, like a bit like a detective, piece together all these things and, and sort of frame the, the narrative based on the clues and try and interpolate between the, the gaps that are lacunae. And um what what, what Tidius Rufus basically does, he calls on his um his colleagues. Um, in, in the adjacent provinces, so Arabia uh, Petraea, for example, and Syria, which is which is a bit north, where there are more legions. And, and again, the way that the Roman administration is set up is interesting. to Think about this. Again, we think about there being one monolithic Roman army. Turns out that's not true. They're, they're provincialized. So there's the army of Britain. There is the army of Pannonia. There is the army of Syria, and they are they all the, the leaders of the commanders, the legates of those report into the provincial governor, who is appointed by the emperor in person. So this man commands a great deal of authority directly given him by the emperor. But you know, it's actually when you look at coins minted by by Hadrian himself, he there, there are coins where it's like exercitum um, um, the, the Mauritania or somewhere or Britain. And what he's doing, he's inspecting the troops of Britain, of Pannonia of Mauritania of Syria. And what that means is, is that if you're a governor in, in, in distress, I guess the way you do it, you send two commands, two two instructions. You send a a message to the emperor saying, update, chief, um, doing these things. What's your guidance? What are your instructions? But you can't wait because it's going to be 14, 15, 30 days before the message gets there and holy hell could happen in between. So you have to use your initiative and you call on the guy next door and say, dear Caius, could you spare me a legion or two? Um, and Castle look at his uh, call on his chiefs and say, uh, You can have four cohorts. I'll take them, four cohorts uh, on their way. And, and, and this is what happens. So in, in, in AD 132 going into 133, armies start moving in from the neighboring provinces and they're called vexillations. And it's an interesting idea that the Romans have invented back probably in the days of Augustus, where you don't need to send a whole legion, you can send piece parts of it. A legion's made up of cohorts and 480 men in the cohort. And that's almost like a little self-functioning army. And they have the command structures and they're in cent- centuries within that. And you can break them off. Five, how many do you need? I can spare six, right? Which means that I don't have to give the uh, the person requiring it everything, but you can give them enough, but you can also fulfill responsibilities. So within about two or three years, upwards of 10 legions or vexillations thereof are operating within this teeny little piece of land that, that, that this rebel's calling Israel, which the Jews, are, which you know, they're holding out as their own country, and the Romans saying, that's our province. We want it back. And, and it's fascinating because, you know, you have to try to work out how on earth does that work when you've got maybe 30,000 troops coming from different parts of the empire working on different command structures. And I'm, I'm, I'm always thinking, I don't know if you know very much about the Revolutionary War in the United States, we're talking about 1776 and, and that period. Um, how how badly managed the British campaign was. Um, uh, Cornwallis and all these sorts of uh, Burgoyne and these sorts of people. I mean, they, they, they were pretty competent generals, but they didn't seem to know how to run a campaign together. Right, uh, and, and in a part the, the, the British lost North America, you know, in part because of ineptitude, incompetence not because of uh, failures necessary the, the the British soldiers on the ground to beat American Continental Army, but it was the ineptitude of the commanders to get their, their ship together, if I can say that online. Um, and you get a similar sort of impression. That's what happens in Judea at this time. And what, what's fascinating is, is that um, Hadrian takes a very light touch to this, but you get an, you get a very interesting comment um, in Cassius Dio, where apparently a phrase that they would use like an annual address to the Senate, who you had to keep, keep on side as it were because they had to bless the legislation and sort of stuff he would report back to them since the army reported to him as the emperor he was the commander-in-chief cnc and he basically said i and the soldiers are well but in this particular case he doesn't use that expression we should say there's a whole lot of shit happening and i'm trying to deal with it but we're going to keep the lid on and um so that that's that's an inference if you combine that little nugget with the fronto thing i said earlier the impression you get is of a situation crazy out of control with, with lots of troops having to move in and a rebel who's, who's running a campaign based on asymmetric guerrilla style warfare with literally people appearing out of tunnels out of the ground, assaulting and ambushing Roman troops. And then as fast as they're disappearing, it's almost like the Viet Cong war of the Vietnam period. Um, and, and I think that's probably the best analogy if I to draw with, 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 a, with a modern campaign. Um, it was a bloody awful war in in, in Vietnam, and it was it would appear to be in, in Judea at the time of Bar Kochba, because he was using the uh, the advantages of an insurgent surprise, local knowledge, and knowledge of how the opponent worked. But the Romans didn't know how the opponent worked, and they kept using their old tried and tested, and they just walked into ambushes all the time. So it, you know, it's extraordinary. So, so the Romans proved to be that they were not invincible for that mm. time. Yeah.
1: And so I suppose them showing, as you you say, that they're not this invincible great power. They do have their flaws. Does it mean that then Hadrian has to sort of now get involved and he can't leave a localized state anymore? He has to become involved. He has to send troops. And do they have any sort of effect at all?
3: There's a fascinating uh, line. I think it's in Cassius, one of you basically says, and then Hadrian sent him his best commander. Um, and what's fascinating about this, remember I mentioned in the letter front that there was a rebellion in Britain?
2: Mm.
3: Well, it turns out the governor at that point was a guy called Julius Severus. And Julius Severus, um, is, we don't know much about him, frankly, but, but apparently he was able to put down a, a, a revolt in Britain. Um, we have to imagine it was, you know, it was pretty brutal, uh, short and brief, uh, high casualties. But he had impressed the emperor enough that he could fight a campaign in the hills and vales of, of Britannia, he could do the same thing in the hills and vales of Judea. Mm. So he literally sends, sends this man, gather your troops, pick up what you need on the way, and he marches these thousands of miles, right? With, with actually, what's what's actually fascinating is if you go to Maryport on Hadrian's Wall and some other place like Chester, um, there are inscriptions which, which mention men who served in Judea. And the implication is, is this, is that a contingent of British officers Auxiliaries and troops went with this this governor, this this Julius Severus, and went all the way down to Judea. And Judea is now basically taken over by this 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 man in command. And then the command campaign changes. So what we what we seem to see again in Cassius Dio is this this idea that instead of sending in a whole legion or cohort, what he does is we're going to have to fight the guerrillas on their own terms. Mm. We know that they fight in their villages. So now instead of trying to draw them out into the open, because they're not going to come and fight us in the open, they know that's stupidity. So we're going to go and actually take them one by one by one by one. However long it takes, we'll just go one by one. And, and 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 this is what he brings. And I have to imagine that this guy has probably been fighting against British rebels like in the north of England, Yorkshire, and places like that, north of Cumbria, what have you, and maybe even um, you know north of the wall that's being built, who knows? That there's not enough information. And he uses those insights to 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 start turning the the, the, the tide. Uh, in favor of the Romans, and then you begin to get the impression again looking at the correspondence between uh Shimon ben 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 Kozibur and his men that uh, the men on the ground seem to be completely believers to this as far as they're concerned they they can kick back and they've got you know money coming in from the tires and they've got all the sort of resources and and Shimon seems to understand it is not going well, and at one point um it seems to be that he's, he's holed up in Herodium, you know, that, that conical tower that, that I mentioned there, outside of Jerusalem. Um, archaeological evidence points to there being a fire within the within this, this this hill to explain there were tunnels in this hill. You get the impression that's how they fight with tunnels. And the tunnels were there very early on, partly because they were cisterns to, to hold rain. But during the first Jewish war, the rebels actually used this as to house troops. And when engineers under Ben Kozava came along what they did was was actually expand the tunnels such that you could actually have four or five men so, shoulder and they could actually march through. There were there were these um, trapdoors and they could appear, they could run down a hill and so on. um There was a fire that, that the the wood carbonized and the the fire was so intense that the stonework turned to chalk. And so we know there was this immense inferno. And in fact, bar seemed or Ben seems to have escaped from there. At least some of his lieutenants did. And um, they were able to take their campaign into En and other places further afield. But but the turning point does seem to be that that they appoint this British governor to bring in a new different way of fighting. And it does seem to work.
2: The really interesting thing is because by even 135 CE, things haven't really changed, have they?
3: Well, it's hard to know, um, because unfortunately, we we don't have a Josephus. If if, if people are are familiar with the First Jewish War, we we have that wonderful book, The The Jewish War, uh, um, uh, which literally is a minute by minute, uh, town by town expose of what's happening. We don't have that for this war. So we have to rely on the few sources that we do have and archaeology. And what's what's really interesting is coins. Um, I mentioned earlier what, the, what, what the, the rebels were doing. They would um, take Roman coins and they would literally smash, they would stamp on them new images. And that they would have the name of the, of the uh, head of state, Shimon, and as Israel. But they also put year one of the redemption of Israel or redemption of Jerusalem. And we know that they get up to year three. Mm. And then they so what they're literally so what they're doing they're, they're dating their history from the first year of the revolution. So that's kind of very contemporary in a way, doesn't it? Um, and the fact that these coins are going into circulation and people are very much engaged because you can see, the, the inference is, is that um, people with their money bags would bring in their silver coins and their copper coins or whatever. They'd probably go to a farm where Shmuel would, would actually have his die, and they'd say, come back tomorrow, and we'll have all the... You, they, they'd stamp them, and then suddenly the, the, the head of Hadrian on one day is, is replaced by a liar or an image of the temple in Jerusalem. And that becomes the official currency. So we know there's, there, there's one dimension to this, which is we know that this thing is going on for at least three years because they say so on the coins but we also know from where those coins were found. Uh, so there are coin hoards, for example, that the collections of coins which have been found in caves or in different farm places are dotted around this area. So we can use that as a sort of an indicator of where that currency was accepted. And then by inference, you can say that's, that's Jewish territory, if you will. Um, but we also know, for example, that sometimes you find these coins fused together because they've been in intense heat. And again, that you can interpret from that, oh, if there was great heat and this is a farm, there must have been an attack and the place burned and these coins fused. And we know that there are several places in the Judean Shiflar, um where this was actually the case. And in fact, the archaeological evidence is, is pretty harrowing. I mean, there are skeletons found with it's clear that decapitations took place because you could look at the vertebrae and you can say, oh, that's a clean cut there. Um, and then they know that the bones were put in uh, mikvah. Um, where they're basically putrefied because they can again see the, the deterioration of the bones yeah it, 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 it it's a it's a world in which brutality in war is accepted there are no Geneva conventions at this time, not for many, many centuries yet um and, and you can you can look at all these things and you can begin to see that what's happening is is that this campaign with these deployed, Vexillations and a change in the way that they're actually deploying them into smaller groups it is collapsing in on on that really the the, the, the the rub of this area which is finally around the area of the of, of the Dead Sea and what's intriguing is going back to the coin evidence we have hardly any of those coins in Jerusalem there's like four they found the fourth one in May last year and people would say well if there are coins found in Jerusalem surely the Jews were actually occupying Jerusalem well, there's another way of looking at it. There are only four out of about 15,000, 16,000 that have been found. And the majority weren't found in Jerusalem. They may well have been that Roman legionaries picked them up. I'm keeping that as a souvenir. I was their mission accomplished, put that in my money bank. Yeah. Um, so what you're finding effectively is a war spoil of a victor. And the implication, I, my interpretation is that, that Jerusalem always remained out of grasp. The Romans had a fort there. They were never going to yield it. Uh, the, the optics of losing Jerusalem would have been pretty bad because this this was Hadrian's new city, Elia capitolina. Gosh, you're not going to lose that. Um, and where, where the Jewish uh, insurgents were concentrated was south of that. And they, they seem to have been focused in on there. So, so in answering your question, I think it's, it's really interesting when you apply numismatics, archaeology, uh, epigraphy, and also uh, just the written evidence in all these clever ways to infer so you can't really do like a second world war map where you show uh, division number one goes here and that six o'clock it's over here unfortunately you can't do that with ancient history it's one of the great frustrations of the humility historian but but you can do the next best thing which is to try and understand topography and uh ways of attacking and all these things and you can say they would do this not that and and, and you can and you say, and the other thing is road network Right. I mean, the Roman legion is going to follow the roads. That's why they build them. So we sort of know the lines of attack. Um, And what's very interesting is that Hadrian already invested in a a major upgrade of the road network in that whole area. Um, So he may have anticipated there were going to be problems in his way of that just to make it easy for the troops to move around. Hmm.
1: So finally, just to wrap up on what's been an absolutely fascinating topic, (laughs) like I can't wait, I'm going to go and get this book, like a physical hard copy of this book for myself, because I, am this is just, like this, (laughs) that book, yes, that you're waving around for is the wonderful, wonderful cover. What does become of Bar Kokhba, you know, how, how is he remembered? Does, is he like the last bastion of Jewish opposition to Rome?
3: Gosh, I think you must have read the sleeve notes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so it, it's it's interesting. So, there's a last stand, right? Everybody's heard of Masada, but very few people have heard of Betar. Mm. Betar was Bacharach's last stand, and and this is a little town on a hilltop, just south of Jerusalem, in in the beautiful area of the Judean hills, which are achingly beautiful. They're covered with trees and they're little hills, which are very, very um, compressed, and they're little ravines. And there was a town beside a road, and and that's where he decided to to, to bring his his moment of uh, closure to this whole thing. And it does appear to be, and again, it's interesting, the rabbinic uh, texts talk about hundreds of synagogues being set up in this place. So what I have to imagine is this little, tiny, little town on the top of a hill which only had like a population of a thousand people. And they were fairly affluent people. The buildings, the archeology span show were quite quite nice buildings. And then it's very interesting, a wall is built, a, a gerrymandered wall gets thrown up around this thing. Buildings get demolished and they reuse the stones so they can actually build this wall. And what they seem to do is hold, hold themselves up expecting a big siege. They, they knew about sieges because the Romans had done this to Jerusalem back in 70s. So they kind of were forewarned about this. And um, there, are, there are little um, caches of things like the sling stones that they found, which are great because they, that would infer they're building up magazines of armaments, if you like, ammunition ready to, to attack. And it's where those are is interesting because a, they're expecting an attack on the east side. But actually, maybe that's a mistake because just because it's a steep incline on the other side. Do you think that's going to bother the Romans much? <laughs> um, the, so, so what happens? Is that there are all these people pile in there, and you have to imagine this becomes a shanty time. So, so in this, there are hundreds of synagogues and people doing these these things to try and survive. It is, is, is a very ev- evocative way, I think, of, you know, you can imagine like a refugee is all piled into this tiny old place. Water supplies are running out, food is bad, uh, hygiene. You, you can only imagine the, the awfulness of it. And then their own army sends vexillations down there. They've, they've, they've had a tip-off or their, their intelligence is good enough. They build a circulation, war, a, a circumvallation, I'm sorry, around this place. How do we know about this? Well, it's fascinating. I, I, I bought a book. We have a bookshop here called Half Price Books. And I found a book, as it turns out, that was um, about aerial archaeology, and it was published like in the eighties or something. And it all black and white. And I flipped through this book, and I was amazed. There was an aerial photograph, a photograph from about 1927, like the picture flown over, and they'd taken a photograph where there's hardly anything there. No, no, no people were living at this point. And you can see the outlines of this thing. It had been there for since AD 135. Um, it's not there now because people live there now, and they use the stones to build their sheds and you know farms and walls around the farm. Um, and again, this is how you have to interpret it. And what's very clear is the Romans took the attack and they sealed off the town. They built camps. And what's fascinating is that they, they looked at it and said, OK, hill there, we're going to build our forts here. We can then fire an infillade around there. And um, what's even more amazing is that they, they, they literally had decided this, this was going to be the showdown. So they built two camps right above Betar, overlooking it. And then in a ring of forts going off in a curve um, even further south, it's like that they were saying, he ain't going nowhere, this guy. You know, we just have so many resources at this point at our disposal. And again, um, there's nothing in the Roman texts which tell us the day, whatever, or even what happened. Um, But what we do have in the Jewish texts is this echo of blood in the streets kids' brains being dashed on stones and this sort of thing. And there were so many uh, spikes stabbed into people's hearts that the streets ran with blood and, you know, the, 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 the hills were red and Um, So it seems to be that he died there. We, we don't know. Um, again, the Jewish sort of sources are very interesting. They, they, they try to sort of like accommodate for Hadrian as being a man that didn't realise who he was dealing with. Um, and if only he'd realised how really important Bar Kokhba was... Um, he would have understood him to be a better man. And, and uh, he would have, you know, they portray they Hadrian in a sense of being, if only I'd known. Uh, and so, so, so we seem to think that around about 135, Betar finally falls. And that's the end of the revolt. Except that a few miles away, down this long road that is around the Dead Sea, there are there's a little tiny little town called Engedi. And what's fascinating, Engedi was a little industrial town. It, we, we now think of it as being a, a, a sort of seaside town. Back in Bar Kokhba's day, this was a thriving little port. They were making um, scents. There's balsam, which was the most expensive thing to buy in the world at that time. They, you know, they, 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 they had certain trees which had resin, and they'd put um, perfumes and things in the resin. They'd ship them out from there. You know, bitumen, asphalt, it used to pop up from the lake in great big bobs. And, and the people go out in the little wee boats and they come and collect it and they package it up and ship it to the shipyards. And Roman ships with bitumen and pitch to seal the, the, the gaps between the planks. They use Engedi bitumen. <laughs> and there was a Roman garrison there. So this has been taken over. And we know a lot about this little place because a letter survive of a lady, of all things, um, uh, she um, was a lady that had moved from Arabia. She divorced her husband, was was, was doing various things trying to make sure she got the money to pay for her future and, and for her kids and so on. And we also have letters where people are buying land and renting buildings and all sorts of stuff. And then it suddenly abruptly hop, stops. And the reason is, is because with the fall of Bataar, uh the Roman troops hunt these people down and those people flee to the caves up in up in the valley behind. Um, that the stark beauty of that area is, is, is in its sort of desert-like magnificence. Um, they have these canyons on the western side, which, which goes several hundred metres inland, and there's a little tiny little stream that, that, that comes at the bottom of some of them, but there are, in this thousand-foot drop uh, between the, the top of the hill and, and the bottom, are caves. And these refugees scrambled up to these caves, hoping that they would be able to see out the wall. And what is very clear is they were not successful. And this is, this is the very moving part of the story, because um, you go back to Yigal Yadin, who is the archaeologist uh, back in the 50s, 60s, uh, and even now they're still doing excavations where they have found bones and personal belongings like pans and baskets. I mean, literally woven baskets with, with rope on um, and cones and bundles of letters tied together with threads of string, um, keys for front doors. I mean, you have to imagine that these are, these are middle class people who have who've thrown in their lot with the revolt. Right? They think it's going to win. This, I believe in this guy. And and then they're now forced to live in a cave. I mean, they've given up the household comforts, creature comforts for a horrible, dry, uncomfortable place to live. And they starve to death. And the Romans play on this. So all they do is that they build camps on the top of the ledge. And anytime someone pops their head out, they fire an arrow to keep them. And, and then there's a certain point. No more heads appear. And the Romans make a determination. I think it's done. Six months later, they move on. It, 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 this is the other side of the story. It's, it's a very brutal, intensely human story. And the extraordinary thing is, is that, nearly 2,000 years later, interestingly enough, on the, uh, the, the bar mitzvah of the state of Israel, these things come to light. And what, what's extraordinary is, is that there, there's, there's an apocryphal story where these letters of Bokhapur uh, are found, where, where he is writing to his lieutenants. And Yigal Yadin is basically an archaeologist that used to be a commander. And they sort of say, these are messages from the previous prime minister of Israel, and, and the reason why <laughs> is, is spooky, because why do we discover them now, right? So a lot of people feel that there's this kind of interesting spiritual connection that goes with that, but but, but the archaeology is very, very clear that the revolution ended there, people died there. Um, if you go to that part of the world now, there is right on the top, there's a monument um, where, where some of the bones were reburied. They thought it was the the, the thing to do. And there's an inscription on there. Unfortunately, it, that's, the one they got now. there, I think, is about the third one because they always seem to get damaged and vandalized. So it, it, it feeds into this really interesting thing that a lot of people are not happy that there is a state of Israel. Okay. Um, and, and these these historical events are the subject themselves of attack. And, and so, so to, to, to kind of wrap up our discussion, what happened after was that the Jews did a lot of soul-searching. Um, they, they wanted to know was, how could we be so duped? How could this thing go so wrong? If, if this guy is the Messiah, why are we in this position? And they start writing the texts. And what's fascinating about uh, Judaism as a project, it is about study and learning and gaining insights. And they, they they write in things like Mishnah and Midrash, which are documents which try to interpret the, 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 the religious texts and inform it with contemporary events so that they can say, this is how we will live today under these circumstances, harkening back to what Solomon did or something like that, because the verses say this. Um, and and they, they write in these comments that uh, basically that we were duped. This man wasn't son of a star. He was son of a lie. We were conned. And, and this is how they look at this. this great sense of loss and mourning. It, it, it ties in also with the, the immediate Roman response, which was having obliterated the, the Jewish revolt, and reestablish control. And by the way, Hadrian got his city that Ilya Capitolina was built. They did build another temple on the Temple Mount. There still isn't one there. Now it's over the, the rock. Um, the whole plan of the modern Jerusalem that we see today still have, has echoes of Hadrian's city in it. The street plan has, has, has echoes of it in there. Um, the Jews were banned from entering Jerusalem. Can you imagine that? I mean, this is your sacred city. You're not allowed to go there. Uh, and, and there was a sense that uh, there was an expulsion of, of the rebel communities and a lot of them found themselves in other countries uh, as, as, as slaves, effectively. Uh, so that's a moving piece. So, so a lot of people say that the reason for a Jewish diaspora can be drawn back. The, the lines go back to this revolt, which is partly true. That The interesting thing is that it was only that part of Judea that was impacted. If you were a Jew living in Sam- Samaria or further north, business as usual. Uh, <laughs> So there was some soul searching back in the, um, in, the in the 80s, and 90s, where people said, how could we as Jewish people and decide I'm not myself Jewish, um, how could we as people ourselves end up by making a hero out of a failed leader? Because by the time you get to the 19th century, a sort of Robin Hoodization or a King authorization of this man, he'd become a folk hero. And people say, well, how can you t- turn a loser into a winner? And, and the context is this. And it's very interesting that you're going to, to Poland because Poland was one of the epicenters of anti-Semitism and pogroms uh, in the, 30s, the 1930s, is the fact that they said, you know what? We, As Jewish people, we've always been picked on. We're always being kicked in the guts uh, and, and shouted at and spat at and so on. We have our own heroes too. And, and, and the way that the diaspora Jews looked at it, they look back at the history. There was one man who a thousand years ago stood up to the Romans and took his country back. And, and there was, a, in this sort of rise of Zionism, uh, one particular ind- individual who coined the idea of muscular Judaism, instead of being this uh, feeble, weak person, he said, we're as strong as anybody. And so they started get, engaging in athletics and football and all sorts of stuff, and they were bar Kochba sports clubs set up all across the east of Europe. And you'll, you'll find evidence of them in, in Poland and Lithuania and Latvia, Hungary, Poland, all over Germany. And this is in the uh, 1910s, 1920s, 1930s. And there's more and more of a case being made for a state of Israel. Uh, and you remember the Balfour Declaration 1917? That's mm-hmm. part of the sort of narrative that, that's going on here. Um, and, and, it, and it culminates ultimately where in the death camps where people uh, make horrible ends, when that's all exposed in, in sort of 1945, and the United Nations then says, yes, there will be a state for jury. It's going to be the state of Israel. Um, by now, you have these resistance groups who are fighting in the name of Bakba. Menachem um, Begin and people like that, uh, who were and Yigal Yadin, who who have become um, modern political figures in, in in Jewish history, Israeli history, um, were, were were drawing on the iconography and the reputations of fallen heroes to rally their soldiers to beat the British to. To, to beat the Arabs, to, to take their country back. And um, all this came to a, to a head, really, with the discovery of the documents in the 1950s and 60s in those caves. Uh, a lot of political capitals may know that. Um, the, he occasionally appears on stamps and on coins. Uh, there are operas about him. There are plays about him. There are novels about him. They're all written in Hebrew. Um, so, so, so for people who don't speak any uh, Ivrit or Hebrew, it's not accessible. And part of the reason I told the story was... I thought it was a wonderful story because it's an ancient story that informs a modern country and its narrative and its history um, and I'm hoping to bring it to a modern audience because I think it's one that needs to be heard.
2: It's been so enlightening having you here and ladies and gentlemen thank you so much for joining us and Lindsay thank you for joining us as well.
3: Oh my pleasure. Bavakasha. When our guests join us to talk about their work in their new book the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them, and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support, and here's to your next great book.
4: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, Hello Fresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm, Hello Fresh